I want to start talking today in Luke chapter 8. Interesting verse in Hebrews 12. I'll just go quickly to, to Hebrews chapter 12. This verse caught my eye. Hebrews 12. I'll start reading verses 1 through 3, but it's really verse 3 that really... Uh, I want to focus on. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When we speak about health care, we often encounter burnout. And so part of the anti-burnout program is to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's a powerful promise. So as I read the scriptures, I look to see where did Jesus encounter hostility? And I want to go to Luke chapter 8, which is the story of Jairus and his, his daughter. I want to give you a little bit of backstory, because typically we're very compartmentalized when we think about these stories. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and after he went to be baptized by his cousin John, he went to be tempted by the devil. He came back in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he set up his ministry in a town called Capernaum. It was around the Sea of Galilee. So much of the, many of the stories we read take place in Capernaum, and so does this one. Jesus is, lives in Capernaum. There's something else that happens. There happens to be a centurion in Capernaum who has a servant who gets sick. The elders of the Jewish people go to Jesus and say, he built our synagogue. Would you, he's worthy to have you do this for him. And we know that story. He heals the centurion's servant from a distance. In the same town of Capernaum, there is this man named Jairus. It's interesting, we don't know the centurion's name. We don't know his servant's name. We don't even know Jairus' daughter's name. But everyone seems to know Jairus, just like you might know Bill Gates or Rockefeller. There's somebody in town who is the mover, who's the man who makes things happen. Now, he is not one of the Pharisees or the scribes. He's not in the religious sector, but the religious and educational 
sector is all mixed in this society. And he's the ruler of the synagogue. That means that often that was a, a family affair, that it was transferred from generation to generation. He supported the synagogue economically. It sounds like the centurion helped them build the synagogue or get approval for it. But the economics, perhaps he's also the one who decides who speaks in the synagogue, and perhaps more importantly in the case of Jesus, who doesn't speak in the synagogue. So as we enter this story, the first verse is when Jesus returned, we're in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. He had just been over to the Gadarenes. He decided to take a day trip over to the Gadarenes. Lives in Capernaum, just going to go for the day. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people that she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Wow. So often we read this passage and we focus on the woman touching the hem of his garment, the fringe of his garment. That seems to be the most powerful part of this story. But I want to exclude that. I want to focus on who is Jairus and what is happening in this dynamic? And what can we learn about Jesus? 
Last night we learned that he, he covers the shame of the woman caught in adultery. He, he moves the attention off of her onto himself as he kneels on the ground. And in this case, we see, I just asked the question, did Jesus and Jairus know each other? Typically, we look at the story and think that they were strangers. Well, I, I want to encourage you as you read these passages to ask questions like that. Because what I'm going to tell you is the way I see it. It may or may not be the way that you see it or the way God shows it to you. But I think God enjoys when we take scripture, which is often cryptic, and we try to build a story around it. What are the motivations of these people? Particularly... Are they anything like me? Because if we can find that sometimes they're like us, we can build a connection and we can empathize and we can also appreciate more what was happening. Well, I don't know that they had had words together, but I'm obviously we know that Jairus knew about Jesus. Everyone in the whole area, the whole region knew about Jesus. And probably Jesus, at least early on in his ministry, had spoken in their synagogue. But I submit to you that recently he had not been invited to speak in that synagogue. That the tide was turning. That Jesus was claiming a new kingdom. That the kingdom of God, up until this point, had to go through the priesthood. That was how you got forgiveness of sins. This was how the religious and economic system worked. You needed forgiveness. You needed to take an animal. You needed to go to the priest. So someone claiming that he could forgive sins without that is a serious intrusion on your way of life. And Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus seems to be drawing very large crowds out. But whenever the religious leaders show up, whenever he comes back to town and says, show us a miracle, show us a sign, he refuses to do it. But here's another question for you. Jairus' daughter is sick, and while he's talking with Jesus, we learn that she has died. Was she sick yesterday? We're all in health care. What are the chances that she was sick yesterday? Reasonable. A couple of days ago? Probably. Why only at this time is Jairus there at this lake waiting for him to come? What is the hesitancy? What is restraining him? It's a good question. What if it's his social circle? What restrains you sometimes from doing what you feel you need to do? Is it your social circle? Because the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, who 
know what the Messiah is supposed to look like and act like, they're saying this is not the Messiah. In fact, we don't want a Messiah like this. I think we need to ask ourselves, what what kind of Messiah do you want? Someone to fix your problems, to bring economic relief, political relief. Because this Messiah is different. Well, Jairus is probably there on the side of the lake waiting for him to come back, kicking himself, thinking, if I could have come yesterday, if I would have just come yesterday. But Jesus comes back, and I I think it's impressive and important that Jairus kneels before him. There's a humility that is required. But very quickly, someone arrives and says, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter has died. And I used to think that was sort of a courtesy. But put yourself in Jairus' position. You've waited for Jesus, he's come. You're on, he, you have Jesus now on the way to the house. Would you want someone to tell you, you your daughter's died, don't bother him anymore. Is that good news to you? Well, it's not. But it also, I believe it, it indicates that the people at the house didn't want Jesus to come to the house. Was there a precedent in the Hebrew scriptures of anyone raising a child from the dead? Let's think. Prophets, Elisha, the Shunammite woman's son. This had been done before. A prophet, even if you agree Jesus was a prophet, prophets had raised people from the dead. He'd already raised the boy from Nain. He'd already healed the centurion's servant. The news spread. They knew that this was possible They did not want this to happen. The people at the house did not want the daughter to be healed. So Jesus now says, look, your daughter will be made well. Let's go. Peter, I think very excitedly thinking, wow, we got Jesus together with the ruler of the synagogue, our little movement is finally going to get off the ground. Let's not mess around with people touching the hem of your garment, getting healed. Let's just get for. Let's get to the house. This is where the movement is finally going to get some momentum. And they arrive at the house, and you see the mourning and the wailing going on. The daughter has died. And Jesus says something fascinating. He says, stop weeping. She's not dead. She's only asleep. And I ask myself now, why would he have said that? Did he have to say anything at all? Or could he have said, 
you guys want to see a miracle, come take a, get a load of this. Let me show you what this really looks like. So why does he say that she's sleeping? You know, I think there are a couple of reasons. But one interesting reason is that he's with Jairus, and Jairus has been part of this group, and I think he's going to illustrate to Jairus that these are not his friends, that they actually don't care about him or his daughter. Because if someone walked into your house, a man who had raised the dead and said, she's not dead, she's sleeping, anyone who loved you or loved your family would jump at that hope. You're kidding. Oh, that's wonderful news. The fact that they laugh, Jesus is showing Jairus their hearts. Jairus, they don't care about you or your daughter. In fact, they don't want her to be healed. You see, Jairus was a synagogue ruler. What are the chances he had at least one physician in that crowd? Pretty good. You're a wealthy man, that's when the physicians are going to show up. In fact, I believe he had more than one, which is why he was so convinced, they were so convinced that the girl was dead that they could laugh because they had pronounced her dead. I think most of the lay people would probably say, well, not, I think she was dead, but you, you could probably sway one of the lay people, but the doctors would, would know that she was dead and they would be the ones laughing. Jesus didn't have to say anything, but he did. And I believe he also said this because when she's raised from the dead, he's giving them a reason not to believe. We think Jesus is, is always putting pressure and going to coerce us to believe. He's always giving us a way out. When she's raised from the dead, if you don't want to believe, you can say she was sleeping but then you're gonna to have to take some humility with your medical diagnosis, won't you? But you've got a way out. You don't wanna believe in me? Yeah, your option, that's your option. You don't want a Messiah like this? You don't want a, a Messiah with a heart like this? I'm gonna give you a, a way out. But what happened to Jairus afterwards? We don't actually know. <clears throat> Although I believe it was that episode that triggered the next few chapters when they arrive now from Jerusalem. To get the Pharisees and the scribes to come from Jerusalem up to Capernaum, you've got to make quite a stir. And I believe this was the stir to heal the synagogue ruler's daughter, to raise her from the dead, caused enough stir in the synagogue. The word got to Jerusalem, and up came the Pharisees and the scribes, and they began to say, it is by Beelzebul, it is the prince of demons, it is by Satan that he is doing his work. And I realized they did tremendous damage to his ministry when they said that. First of all, tremendously disrespectful 
and I, I can't imagine it would be disrespectful to me, but to say to the Son of God, you're doing this by Satan's power. But they would do anything to try to keep him down, to try to keep him back. And so now it's interesting that now if you had been healed by Jesus, how do you feel about telling anybody about it? Since the Pharisees are saying he's healing by Satan's power, now it kind of puts a, a tarnish on the good that has happened to you. It's a very it's confusion that they have sown into the ranks. And it's as if all the professors of Harvard and Stanford and all the pastors all got together and said, this man is not the real deal. They did tremendous damage to his ministry. In fact, this is going to be the people that ultimately are going to incite the crowd against him. Well, I want to switch gears here a little bit because what is fueling this is envy. And envy is one of those things that's often hidden. And as I looked back in my life, the first time that I remember, I was in my early teens, I think, and I decided I want to build, I wanted to build a trap, a wild animal trap to catch live animals in the woods. So I went to the library and I checked out a book and I went home and with very little attention to detail, I put together sort of a, a box out of sticks that had a door that would close when the animal ate the carrot. And I put it out in the woods and nothing happened. And I checked the next day and nothing happened. And I changed from a carrot to some celery and nothing happened. And then some lettuce and trying to get a rabbit or squirrel or something to go into my trap. And built a whole salad in there to try to entice some little animal with radishes that nothing would enter my trap. Well, my older brother decided that he was going to build a trap, and he, with a little more attention to detail, he built a box that was, well, it had sleek lines, and it would looked a lot nicer than my trap. And he put it out in the woods, and as I pondered that, I just felt that I really didn't want him to catch anything in his trap because I had been trying for a week. And so I went out and I tripped the trap and the door closed and I ran away. And I slept well that night knowing he would not catch an animal in his trap. And then he started to catch on that every night his trap was closed I decided I just better put my handprints on it so the animals would smell it and stay away from his trap. Neither of us ended up catching anything. What was driving that? That was, as I think about that, what made me want to make sure that he did not have anything that I couldn't have. Not long after that, I remember my father was referring. I have an older brother and a younger brother, two years older, two years younger. And in casual conversation, my younger brother had done something or solved a problem, and he referred to my younger brother, Mark, as a genius. Ooh, that made me so mad. 
And my, younger, my older brother and I were both incensed by this. We got very little remarks or attention, positive attention from my dad. So this was a big deal. And thinking of how, how could we destroy him? How could we make sure that it was, it's amazing how my young mind grasped I didn't want him to have something if I couldn't have it. Well, fast forward to residency. I was convinced that it would be all one big happy family once I got into neurosurgery residency. Finally, a group of people who were all had my back, who were all behind me, who all wanted me to succeed. How naive I was. We were up all night checking scans, running for traumas. And I remember one of the chief residents who really didn't like me and, and presented to the residency director that I had forgotten to check a scan and the patient had a post-op hematoma, had to be taken back to surgery. And I was so thankful the residency director said, well, whose patient was it? Who operated on the patient? And he said, well, I did. He said, well, why didn't you check the scan? God had my back. But even out of residency, getting my first job, I was doubly trained. The people recruited me to do work at this hospital, very high level work. But then I started hearing people bad mouthing me behind the scenes, talking bad about me, wanting to diminish the work that I was doing. I was flown to New York City to be on national television. I was flown to Paris to do surgery. Envy is Seeing the beauty or the virtue in someone and having contempt for it, wanting to diminish it, wanting to downplay it. Envy actually means it comes from invidia, the Latin. Invidia, to, to look, to look in. Envy, we're looking in, we're, we're looking to see what the others have. And it's, it takes root so easy in many of us that did not, that were not celebrated during our childhood. We were not given specialness. We were one of the kids, perhaps. And so it, it fuels envy. Suffering makes us susceptible to envy. It's not enough. You don't want anyone to have anything that you don't have. Our culture is absolutely rife with it. It is full of it. And what I want to do today is at least identify it in ourselves. When I started looking at this in myself, I was amazed. I finally had a chief of neurosurgery. I had, uh, he, he, he actually recruited me to San Diego. And then for some reason, I wasn't 
playing along with the game and, and he turned against me and I, I couldn't really understand exactly why. And one of the physician's assistants asked him, why, why are you so angry? Why are you so negative about David? He said, I don't know, I just, I just hate his hair. <laughs> yeah, I just hate his hair. Although ironically, they say in Facebook, one third of the people come away from a Facebook encounter with a negative overall attitude. Facebook responsible for a lot of depression and it's responsible for a lot of envy. Typically, they say that men envy family photos. They envy other people's families. Women more commonly envy appearance of other women. I wonder, have you seen someone's happiness and not been happy? for them. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. Is there someone in your circle, maybe someone in your family, that you've struggled with their success, with being happy for them, with praising them? This is what I see. I see envy as, it's like a light on your dashboard. It's that red light that goes off. It is a warning signal that something is wrong in your spiritual life. Something is out of balance in your spiritual life. It comes subtly. It comes, it just flies under the radar. We're so used to it. But if you don't attend to that red light, the fruit of envy is resentment. And resentment will steal all the joy from your life. Our culture, especially our medical healthcare culture, is built on comparison and competition to get into these schools, to succeed in these schools, to get the grades, to get the marks. But we're sowing seeds often, and I remember being jealous or envious of the people with higher scores than me. There's always someone who's got something a little bit more than you. And I find in the social arena that we often will compare our insides with someone else's outsides. And especially women, we're comparing our insides with someone else's outsides. And we always come out lower. Our spiritual life somehow is second class to someone else's beauty or fake beauty as it, as it is now in the culture. You can surgically alter that. Don't compare your inside with someone else's outsides. But it's a subtle sin. You know, nobody really wants envy because no one, I mean, will confess fear or even lust, but to say, I, you know, I'm having a problem with envy is not a very common statement. People will automatically, well, what's wrong with you? It's so subtle, we don't even notice it. Start 
I just want to put it on your radar when you go to church. When you, we're always looking around. I remember the single days. I know the married days. People now will envy you if you're married. They'll envy you if you're single. They'll envy the car. Everyone is looking for, the whole media advertising world is trying to get us to envy. In fact, I remember, I remember the days in residency or wanting to, wanting to have uh, a woman or a car or a watch that people would be jealous of. In other words, to cause people to envy is some sort of power. Wow, how twisted that is. How twisted that is. You know, envy is the oldest sin. We think of it as pride, but think of what happened to Lucifer in a perfect environment. So if you think it can't happen to you, it happened in heaven. It happened in heaven. Perfect environment. Lucifer said, I want to be like you. I want, I want the top billing. I want to be like you. I don't want you to have something I can't have. And I believe that he also convinced Eve to envy the beauty and the power and the things that God had. And perhaps even envy her husband so that she would leapfrog over him to take that fruit. And he sows, Satan loves to sow envy into all of our lives so that we will take the bait. And so it'll make us miserable and it'll fuel and motivate us to do things and especially to speak negative words. Oh yeah, well, she's, you know, she's, she's a good hostess, but I mean, did you hear about, you know, the way she drives? You know, we always have to have a bit of a needle, don't we? We have to have a little something Something to cut them down. And I think this tall poppy syndrome, somebody said it, it originated down here. Well, we've, you've exported it to the U.S. We've got plenty of that as well. Unable to let people shine, to let people be in their glory, to give them glory. We become antagonistic because we, we don't know how to admire. We don't know how to give admiration. And if you want that gift or another gift, you can actually ask God for it. There's something about admiring something. And I, I want to encourage us today. We're going to take some quiet time. And we're going to think on this. The things that you admire, the things that you want. Maybe you want to be up here speaking. And if you're a speaker, what I find is that you become critical of other speakers. If whatever your gift is, somehow Satan wants to get you to be negative about the way other people do that. I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have said it that way. I might have started off with a joke and not with Luke chapter 8. I mean, whatever <laughs> your deal is, can you, can you receive? Can you enjoy? Can you enjoy someone's gift in the unique way that they present it, maybe not in the perfect way, or maybe not in the way that you would do it. There's something about us as believers in Jesus to be able to admire. There's something also, so that anti-envy protocol would be something like, it starts with gratitude. 
I think envy, jealousy, the scriptures use them interchangeably. So I'm just going to lump them together. It's essentially saying to God, you gave them the good stuff and you gave me the garbage. I want that stuff. That's the good stuff, what they've got. I want that gift. My gift doesn't matter to me. That's low, low, low stuff. I think it's very offensive to God. And I think we want to wake up. I mean, he understands because he knows, as we explained the other night, the enemy has twisted. He's put iniquity in all of us. So probably your parents also had envy going. And so you just learned it from watching them and from watching your classmates in school and your teachers and, and the media watching our videos. It's all about it. Just you see you're a fish swimming in a, in a sea of envy. So he understands. He's saying, I don't condemn you, but I want to bring this to your attention. That is stealing joy from your life. And that's stealing joy from your relationship with me. Because envy is a barometer of your relationship with God. And that light on your dashboard is telling you something is out of whack here. I am not receiving from the Father the value. I'm not going to him for my value. I'm actually going to other people. And when someone else has nicer hair or whatever it is, they're getting more attention than you, and immediately you, you want that attention. So in our quiet time today, maybe you can ask God for that attention. Maybe you can go to him for that attention to say, you know that, I, I've noticed I've got some envy, especially with this person. Specifically figure out what that person has and why you envy them. What have they taken that you want attention maybe from someone that you wanted attention from? They won an award that you wanted to win. Whatever it is, perhaps go to the Lord and admire their gift. And that is so freeing. And we're just going to sow some freedom into our lives today as we admire, even from non-believers, what God has placed in them. He has given non-believing musicians fantastic abilities. I disagree with the way many of them display it or portray it or what they write their songs about, but I can admire the gift. I think it just gives joy to the Lord to, because something about envy also says, I define my world by scarcity. There's only so much. And if I don't get my bit, God does not have enough to go around. So I am going to be scratching and clawing for every bit of attention, every bit of money, whatever, I'm going to need it. I am a, a product of scarcity. I've got news for you. We are in a culture of abundance. There is abundance. And you need to go and ask for what you want. Ask for what you need. And if you're not getting and, and the light on your dashboard is going off with this envy, then press into that. That's showing you something very gently about your heart. My heart is not pure. Or I just have this twisted view of life. I'm seeing things wrongly. There is enough to go around. I do have special gifts. And I hope that as you visited the, uh, the prayer room, some of you have, have ignited some of your gifts. People have called them out of you. 
And if you if that hasn't happened this this weekend, then seek it out. Ask somebody, what are my gifts? So that they can encourage you in your gifts, and we don't have to want what someone else has. I just want to take some time now. So we're going to do, um, oh, I'm just going to read a, a verse. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If, if you want to boast in something, you can boast that you understand God. Now I'll throw in a caveat here. People will see that glory and they will see your purity and oftentimes they will turn on you. It happened to Jesus and if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to you. And they will try to turn. They will say, if they could say to Jesus, he's doing miracles by the power of Satan. With all the fruit in his life, with all the humility in his life, with the beauty in his life, they will say it to you. Now, giving a little bit of a break to the people of that society. Oftentimes we see pictures of Jesus and he doesn't really look like a 30-year-old. He looks like he's about 45. Jesus was 30. Jet black hair, black beard. And everyone else in that culture that was speaking had gray hair. It took a while before you were listened to and you could become a rabbi. He was basically... A construction worker, we say he was a carpenter, but the word is tecton in the Greek. He's just a construction worker. So a construction worker with no schooling calls himself a rabbi, uh, starts having meetings at his house. Yeah. You've been at this for many, many years. You've studied with all the right rabbis. There would be a reason you would be jealous of him. And the people are starting to follow him. For some reason, in the Father's wisdom, he chose Jesus to start his ministry at 30 and not at 50, so he would fit in. He was offensive. He was offensive. He was not deferring to them. He was not giving them all of the respect that they were used to for their education level because he was actually correcting them. He was correct. He was right. But culturally, he was offensive. Can you handle some cultural offense? Can you handle some younger doctors, younger nurses coming along and maybe stealing some thunder from you, maybe taking some attention from you? I want to spend some time. There's something about offense that to, to really move into faith, offenses will come and we have to know how to deal with them, how to deal with our envy, how to go to God with that, how to even say, ouch, this hurt, Father. Would you, would you help me? I'm feeling this pain. I would just want to spend some time now. Uh, we'll just do some silence. Worship is also a anti-envy, to really worship God. 
If you're not someone who lifts your hands in the air, you may want to try that if you've got a problem with envy. There's something about real worship and using your physical body that actually helps to engage this, your position in the world. Being able to bless. Being able to bless others in admiration to give gratitude. Here's a confession you may try. Forgive me for my inability. Let's just, uh, even together, we can say this. Forgive me, Father, for my inability to bless other people's happiness. Forgive me, Father, for my inability to enjoy other people's success, their beauty, their wealth, their good decisions, and their good fortune. Now, I want you just to think, if there's, is there someone who threatens your position or your security or someone who, for some reason, didn't rejoice at your success? Let's just do some work with the Father. Let's make some lists of even some people who, at church or whatever, and let's just start blessing. One of the, the antidotes to this is to bring the love of Christ between you and people either who don't bless your success or whose success that you are having trouble blessing. Just bringing the love of Christ and his admiration and calling out and, and blessing their relationships, their, their health, their wealth, whatever it is you need to do to be free of this, this curse, this joy robber in your life.